Welcome to the bonus episode of This Week in Ukraine. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. We've got a bit of an unusual guest today. It's David Knowles, who is the head of the audio development at The Telegraph and the host of The Telegraph's Ukraine, the latest podcast. David and his colleagues are in Ukraine for several weeks, and we invited him to our studio to talk about our reporting on Ukraine in the context of the approaching anniversary, the two-year anniversary of Russia's political invasion. David, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm sure we all uh, had our fair share of interviews about, you know, like what's reporting on Ukraine been like and things like that. But I wanted to ask you specifically in the context of the podcast, why did you decide to like make it in the first place? Because I've checked your audio page and I don't think The Telegraph has any other podcast that's like specifically about one conflict or one country or one region. So it's, it's a bit unique. So the the origin of the podcast is is I think probably also quite unique. So back in back before the start of the full scale invasion, I was actually head of social media at the Telegraph. So I ran the social media team, mm-hmm. and so not not a, not a foreign correspondent, not a foreign journalist or anything. And of course, we saw that the full scale war was approaching. And as as head of social media, I was asked, "You need to make a plan. What do we do? How are we covering it?" What platforms are we using, et cetera, et cetera. And this was before the invasion. Before itself. the invasion. Mm-hmm. And so there's all sorts of things we were thinking of for Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I'd been doing with the social media team at The Telegraph for a few months by then was Twitter Spaces. So the live audio tool you can use on Twitter. And so it formed part of the social idea of how do we cover this if it happens? We will launch Spaces and try and speak to people. At that point, I met Dom Nichols in the office, who's the associate editor for defense, and he was very keen to to do this sort of thing, to do broadcast, do more broadcast mm-hmm. journalism. Mm-hmm. So on the first day, I think it was the early Thursday morning, I I think I was I was for some reason up. I saw, looked at my phone, saw it had started. So in my capacity of head of social media, pressed all my buttons, said, right, social media editor needs to get in early. We're launching this, this, this. Here are the cards we're doing. And later that day we did our first space. And I, I can't I can't quite remember who was on it. I think it was me, Dom and one or two other people. And we did this for several days and we got quite a large audience. And we, and we did it because we thought it mattered. We thought if this does happen, it's the most seismic event in modern European history um, since the Second World War, really. So we have to cover it well and we should cover it well. And that was on Thursday. And we did two spaces and I think we did another one on Monday. And on Monday, the then head of audio came back, I think from some time off. And she said, I see what's happened. I wish, she said something, she said something like, I wish we could have launched a daily podcast on this. It's really, really important. And I said, well, we have these spaces, mm-hmm. which we have these, and you can record the, you can record the sounds. So why, don't, why don't you use that? And right. she said, well, if you want to do this, then we need a regular host. So I said, okay, well, if that's what's needed, if that's <laughs> what we I'll need to start, that. then, then I'll, I, guess, I guess I'll do that. And mm-hmm. here we are more than 500 episodes later, I've been sanctioned by the Russian Federation. You know, it's, it's been quite a, um, it feels like it's been quite a journey. And that's, that's how it started, yeah. And this was kind of, this was one of my questions as well. I mean, 500 days later, like two years later into the war, you're still doing it, which to be honest, I'm a bit surprised by because, I mean, it's very unfortunate, but not very surprising that the international attention on Ukraine is kind of declining. And we've seen like some media outlets, you know, like removing, for example, the Ukraine war tag from their main page or something, especially in the context of, you know, the horrible war in Gaza that's happening and everything in the Middle East these days. Like Ukraine, like may not seem as like the most hot thing out there, but you're still doing the podcast daily, which is 
like huge amount of resources and, you know, huge amount of work. Why? Have you ever had a conversation about, you know, like wrapping it up or? Um, I think the only time we, we thought about having those conversations was maybe towards the end of the summer in 2022. This summer, yeah. Sorry, 2022, oh, I think. Mm-hmm. We noticed other podcasts had started to move away from being daily and be weekly or bi-weekly. Mm-hmm. We thought, gosh, is that something, you know, maybe we should think about that and we should think about other projects. And my job, my managers were starting to get, were starting to see how much time this was taking and it was never my job, right? Like I was supposed right, to be head of, right. social, yeah, I was yeah. head of social media. Well, uh-huh. And it's doing this started as, you know, half an hour, an hour a day. And then became bigger and bigger and bigger. The more resources I had to put into it, the, mm-hmm. you know, I very quickly realized that we, you know, I, I, I picked up some, some of the script and some of the language, but I don't speak Ukrainian and Russian, no, mm-hmm. neither do the other presenters. Mm-hmm. And we realized very quickly that we didn't want to just be a sort of Westerners talking about something we didn't understand. We mm-hmm. had to scale up quite quickly and we had to bring as many Ukrainian voices on as possible, as well mm-hmm. as, you know, think tankers and international affairs people. And that takes resources. That takes, mm-hmm. as I said, not an international journalist. So to build up that network of contacts and just finding and just a guest finding, for the episode is huge yeah, work. It's huge work. It's huge work. And anyway, so so we had those conversations and then the counteroffensive that took back Harkov, um, most of Harkov launched and suddenly we realized is the fact that we carried on being daily. We were the last English speaking resource left that people mm-hmm. would want to come to. And since then, we've never really had that that conversation. It's it's been a we it's been more of a vocation. Like we continue this until until the end. And so, how has your perception of the war and what's happening here in Ukraine been shifting? Uh, and I guess that's a question to like about you know your perception personally, but also I wonder what about you know people in the UK, your local audience. Are you seeing? Like that they're responding to the news differently, or maybe they're less interested or more interested or disappointed, or, you know, two years later, how are people feeling? How are you feeling? Gosh, um, I would like to say, first of all, majority of our audience, so that the largest share of our audience is actually American. Um, We have far more, I think the numbers might have shifted recently, but I think it's, I think it's maybe at least 50% of our audience are in the States. Pretty sure it's the same for us. Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think it's English language thing. If you break into the market, if you break into the market, then there's just so many more people (laughs) who who will listen. I think I think there are people who are really really hyper engaged and will follow every single day and they really they really really care, uh, which is kind of really gratifying to see. I think speaking to friends, speaking from the UK perspective, people, what's quite gratifying and encouraging in the UK is I don't I've never really heard a lot of people. Not people don't pay as much attention. I think that's probably true. But I don't think, I don't ever see, I very rarely hear anybody saying, why, why do we support Ukraine? What's in it for us? It does feel that, and you see this reflected in the politics, that it's fe- it's pretty much the settled will of both political parties to do this. That's which, so refreshing yeah. to hear, to be honest, um, well, in the context I, yeah. of what's happening in the US. Like. Quite, quite. And um, I mean, I, I went to the Labour Party conference, you know, the party who are hotly tipped to, to wipe out the Conservatives in the upcoming general election. And I listened to the Shadow Foreign Secretary Shadow Defense Secretary and a few others at the sort of drinks for Ukraine support event at the conference. So I've got everything they've said, I've got written down somewhere. And they were pretty unequivocal with their support. So if, if they ever go back on that, we can start throwing some of their words back at them and say, well, did you mean it? What's going on? I think personally, what I've found, um, in, a, in a way, it's been a really odd experience because, you know, so as I said, I wasn't a foreign journalist. I, I, am I even now? I'm not sure. But um, I certainly wasn't an international journalist. I speak French, but I didn't, didn't speak a Slavic language. Well, I speak mm. a little bit of Czech and that's helped, but it's, <laughs> it's helped. It hasn't, hasn't got me further. Um, 
and to, so to discover a culture and uh, a country kind of going through one of the worst well if not the worst experience of or, or you know you can ever have in a country at war where everybody knows somebody who's killed or injured when mm-hmm. uh, whole populations are on the move mm-hmm. when people don't know what's going to happen in the future i mean so many you know i mean my ukrainian friends talk about their social media becomes a, a, gra- a graveyard essentially of of of, of that's so accurate. yeah so it's an odd thing to sort of get to know a country and kind of really fall in love with it right like it's it's you know two years on nearly nearly two years sorry i've got lots of friends here lots of contacts friends i know I, I know you know i interviewed somebody personally who was killed by a missile uh a few months a few months after i after i spoke to her who and it, in some ways you feel maybe guilty is not the right word but you i mean i've already got a list in my head of like everything i want to see in ukraine after the war because mm-hmm. i because i want I'd, I'd love to be able to do that separate to what my job is now which is to try and tell this story as accurately as possible without and this is why i love what you guys do at the key of independence so much is you, the journalism comes first like searching for the truth com, comes first ahead of whether the army might not like it or the government oh, yeah. might not like it it's, and that's that's, that's like, been a hard topic <laughs> of conversation yeah and that's and that's you know and that's why we rely on you guys and i think so many people in the English-speaking world do, because you're on the ground, you're actually seeing it, and we are still a bit f- further away doing our best to kind of relay that to mm-hmm. our listeners. You've never been in Ukraine before, before the war, the war. And, and how many times have you been here? In, this now? is my third time. Your third? Okay. Yeah. My first time was to Kiev, and I sort of went to Butcher and Irpin. Second time, I was following a group of British volunteers, driving all the way from London to Kramatorsk, delivering aid and cars and things. And I kind of really wanted to do that because... It, it's sort of, I mean, you know, it seemed like the sort of the ultimate road trip. Like, <laughs> and and these volunteers really are, they're, they're assen- in some ways they're essential. These soldiers wouldn't have this stuff if they didn't bring mm-hmm. it. So I wanted to see what that felt like to go with them and see. I was most interested in the, you know, the soldier's reaction to, you know, my first question was, what does it feel like to be this kind of thing? This mm-hmm. kind of English guy has just turned up and given you a, tr- a truck. When are you going to use this stuff and what, you know, what's your reaction? And they, you know, the brigade commander, I think she was the brigade commander, broke down in tears and she said, well, we're going, to, we're going to use them tonight. We're going back to Bound. And then the third time is obviously here. It's strange, isn't it? Because you want to say, I'd love to come again, but the reason I'd be coming again in the near future is because yeah. something's gone yeah. even worse, really. What's your impression of Kyiv been like? I feel like a lot of people have a very different understanding of what it's like compared to when they actually come and like encounter it. I feel like it's much more normal than people imagine. Huge thanks to the air defense systems that oh, we've yeah. received. I think again, again, I've come. I come from this weird place of not necessarily having any preconceptions before being mm-hmm. here. So it's yeah, it's incredibly technologically advanced city. It's mm-hmm. um, beautiful. I mean, you know, we're here in in your offices right next to uh, St Andrew's churches. Yeah, just on the side, gorgeous. You know, looking mm-hmm. out, looking out over the river, looking out over to the forests, and I, I mean, I would say the food. You know, I think people know this. Ukrainian food is incredible. The, mm. pro- the produce is so good. So the food you make from it is fantastic. The coffee, and I can see Adelie smiling, the coffee in Ukraine is the best in Europe, really. It's, oh, yeah. So I so second that. Um, we have, like, more third-wave coffee shops than, I don't know, like, humans, to be honest. Yeah, like, always. Like, way, the concentration <laughs> is way too high per square meter. And, and it's, it's just sort of incredibly, yeah, I just, I just really love it as a city. Um, a bit of a dark question, but I'm very curious to hear your answer. Was there, in the two years of your reporting, was there a particular moment or several moments, I don't know, which were like maybe the darkest or the most sad that you've had 
you know, oh. in the whole two years, like, I don't know, a day where you were just like, like, how Gosh. do I, how do I do this? Like, why is this my job? I don't know. Cause I, I've had a moment like that. Yeah. So I wonder if um, you did. I think, I think it was, I think there's been several. I think one I can think of is, I mentioned earlier that I interviewed somebody who was killed and I, so I was in Kramatorsk and I'd seen, so it was Victoria Amelina, who's the, the yeah, writer. Right. Um, yes. And uh, she, she'd noticed from her social media that she was somewhere in, around that region as well. I made a mental note of like, oh, I should, I should, we should catch up. It'd be good to sort of see her. I interviewed her in London. Now I can, we can catch up in, in, mm-hmm. in Kramatorsk. Uh, and, but we missed each other. I was there, I think, a week earlier, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And, but I was aware she was about and in the, in the area. So when mm-hmm. the missile hit the cafe in, in Kramatorsk, which killed her and I think a couple of, uh, uh, some sisters and quite a few other people injured, mm-hmm. quite a few people. I mean, one yeah. of our own journalists was there in that cafe at the same time oh and, and left about 20 minutes before to really? go and do another job. That um, is insane. But I was, I think, because I think, I, I can't quite remember the sequence of events, but it happened on a Friday, I think, or Thursday night or Friday. And then the news of her death, the news of her murder, hadn't been confirmed until I think the Sunday evening. So I'd been playing, I'd been playing cricket um, all day in the sun and was sitting on the bus on the way back from our match. I kind of think half of my kit. And then looking at my phone, reflect because something was clearly up. Like we, I was pretty sure something had happened because people had posted things and deleted them. I'd heard from others, and then to see that, like sitting on a London bus in your cricket whites, to hear somebody that you know, and I'm not pretending I was her friend or anything, but I knew her a little bit, and we like, we interviewed her several times. So to know that somebody who sat opposite you took your sort of you remember her being so alive, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember her sort of you know my my, my incredibly clunky questions, and she answered them <laughs> with, a, with a with great skill and. And um, kindness, and to suddenly realise that, that this is what it means. Like it means somebody mm-hmm. as talented as that is just not there anymore because a massive rocket came out of the sky and f- for no military reason whatsoever blew off the face of the earth. I mean, that's how that's how ridiculous and tragic this war is. You said you said earlier that you know everyone here knows somebody who's been dead or, or injured, and that everyone even includes you. And you're not even Ukrainian, you know, and and you've had a connection with the person who was killed. I think the other time. The other time I'd, I'd highlight was on the same trip, actually. So to get to Kramatorsk, we went from uh, Kharkiv down to Izum, then Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. I think that's mm-hmm. the right. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's the road we took. And when you're there, close to these villages that have been just utterly destroyed by, by artillery, mm-hmm. and just going, sort of driving through them, and there's a sort of awful silence, and there's not a single house with a roof still on it. And you can see a Ukrainian flag fluttering, so this mm-hmm. is all you know, re- recaptured. And I think I think... You know, when we think of the re- sort of counteroffensive that took back all this, all this land and all these, you know, all these people, in some ways, maybe our gaze shifts somewhere else because that's been done. Then we can take that off. Mm-hmm. And going through, you're like, oh no, like these are the scars of this, the impacts mm-hmm. of this won't fade in living memory, really. Like there's nobody lives here anymore because if you lived there beforehand, you know, there's a good argument. Why would you go back? Because the Russians aren't beaten yet. And they, they'll probably come back. So actually, no, we're going to move somewhere safer. I mean, I, I noticed this when I was reporting in Butcher that lots of the people you talk to are not originally from Butcher, they're from Holivka. They've come from, you know, yeah. um, they move, that's again, the sort of tragedy upon tragedy. They yeah. moved from there to Butcher because they yeah. thought that was safe. Similarly to Mariupol, so yeah. many people who yeah. live there were the people that moved from the occupied territories of Donbass in 2014, right? Yeah, I mean, but I'd say that's the, the seeing the realities of what, what, you know, what does an artillery barrage do to it? places where people live like that's that's something that you don't forget and still i think 
not many words you can use to describe it because you just have to see it. Like, and I remember the, the, the awful silence, the nothing silence. Yeah, nothing the bus living. is full of that. Yeah. I, when I first went there, I also noticed, you know, and this was before the full scale invasion. Uh, I also had a work trip. We went all around on bus basically somehow within like four days or something. So it was like we went to Avdivka, like Slavyansk, Armatorsk, like the whole thing from north to south. And yeah, there were so many fields that were completely silent. And but but then you remember that like, oh, the Russians are like literally, you know, like a few dozen kilometers away, especially if you're in Avdivka. It's it was so I mean, what's happening now is extremely tragic. You know, you know, the city has just fallen. But when I was there, you you stand on a roof of like a building and you think, wow, like you might be in like in the sight of Russian snipers right now. Like maybe you should get the hell out of there, <laughs> you know. But you mentioned Buchen. That was I'll share my story. That was my kind of craziest, most sad moment probably was in, in the very beginning of the war. So maybe April when when it was liberated. Um, and we just started receiving, I think it was, a, it was a weekend. It was a Sunday or a Saturday. And we just started receiving the photos, the, the, the photos of Bucha. It was the first time that people saw, you know, like dozens of bodies dead on the ground and, you know, what Russians left behind. And, and, and it was a shock to everybody. That's when we first started talking, I think, about, you know, this being a genocide. At the time I was writing, I was in Lviv. So I was, as this started rolling in in the morning, I was sitting in like the media center in the center of Lviv, writing a story about Mariupol, because I just interviewed a bunch of um, refugees who escaped. So the story was extremely tragic. Like the testimonies of people who flew from Mariupol was in itself like one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And then these photos are coming in and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, well, my job is really useless. I, I, it was, I think it was like the only time I've ever thought that because, you know, to be a journalist, you have to be pretty idealistic. Mm-hmm. You have to like be driven by the fact that your, your work matters, at least to be a good journalist, I think. Like you have to be driven by an idea. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, no matter what the hell I write right now, like nothing's going to bring these people back. It's likely not going to stop the war. It's not going to stop more people from being killed. So it was just like, I just felt so helpless. And it took me so long to write that story. I, I think it was one of the best stories I've ever written. It was a really good story. But I remember feeling like so helpless and so just like, wow, this is so evil and there's absolutely nothing I can do. Like nothing I write matters. No matter how good the story is, it's not going to change anything. I think that's something, I don't know whether we're there yet, but certainly obviously our reporting over the past few months after the, the failure of the counteroffensive and now the fall of mm-hmm. Afshivka, um, it. You know, we've never seen ourselves, we're not, we're journalists, we're not sort of propagandists or flag-waving for Ukraine in some ways. We're just trying to return it. I think, I think obviously our personal sympathies, obviously, there, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that obviously comes across in our reporting. But to, to have to keep on looking as something is starting to go badly wrong. And or maybe, again, maybe we're not there yet, but we're maybe not far away from it. It's the impression I took from Francis Farrell about things like the shell shortage, the shortage of men, mm-hmm. full of Avdivka. That and we we it'll be a lot harder to do this when this if this if this carries on like this because we can't look away and we won't look away. But when what you're looking at, you know, as kind of as you said with butcher is so so horrible, but you still got to yeah. Our job is to try and put that to some extent to one side and be like, what is happening? Why is it happening? I mean, I was talking to um, your colleague Danilo from the War Crimes Unit, and the thing that one of the things that really got me about him talking about his reporting was. Because it was kind of on my radar, really, to ask him was what, you know, why we, we were talking about possibly the, the worst thing you can ever talk about, the, 
the deliberate murder of Ukrainian children. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he just didn't, even with all his work, he hadn't really understood like why. You like, can understand the sort of... You can and understand. that's like literally, it was his job mm. in a way to understand mm. why that happened and he, and he couldn't write an answer. And we, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the sort of atmosphere of impunity enjoyed by Russian mm -hmm. soldiers, the lack of care for, for other people, the fact that the culture encourages it, the sort of militaristic culture encourages it. Mm -hmm. But to that, that, we couldn't really go beyond because there's, there's that's such... That's not quite such, enough. Yeah, that's not quite enough. There's, there's such a... It's almost like you're looking into a piss, a sort of like a black mm -hmm. hole, really, of like of understanding that somebody else could do something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think, even, I mean, even though I think the fact that we talked about that, and we've, we sort of talked about how difficult it is to try and find what that might be, is, is quite useful because I don't think there's a white, you know, easy explanation, mm -hmm. easy simple explanation. But yeah, no, see how how I rationalized it for myself, you know, when when I was sitting there and Lviv trying to write that story is like. Yeah, it's likely not gonna not gonna change anything now, or you know, in the grand scheme of things. But you know, I told myself that I was doing it for the history books. You know, like even if it doesn't have like a tangible effect, which I mean, like of course I no longer believe that. Of course, I think that journalism is an extremely you know um, helpful and necessary and important profession, especially during war. And you know, I've written stories that people have reacted to by like sending money or aids to the people that I've wrote about, and I've connected. I've connected volunteers with families. So, of course, there are tangible effects. But at that moment, I just told myself, like, even if this doesn't do anything, at least, like, these five women who get out or, you know, these two men who get out, at least I'm going to hear what they have to say. And it's going to be somewhere on the Internet and their stories are going to be somewhat preserved. Like, at least that's the small benefit that I can have. That people in the future will hopefully look back on mm -hmm. everything we've done and that's it. That's the stories we saw it at the time. These voices are heard. They're not ignored. I'm um, just on the, your point there about the sort of after effects of, of, of reporting when you talk about things like charities and aid and mm -hmm. so Because, yeah, mm -hmm. listeners, we have that quite a lot. We'll interview, interview a charity and I'll always try and keep up with the people we've talked to because I'll say, did anything happen? And I mean, this is, this is, you know, we've talked about a lot of gloomy things. Maybe this is a really good, maybe this is a good, inspiring one. But so there's a, a wonderful British woman called Ada Wordsworth who speaks fluent Russian and I think nearly fluent Ukrainian. She runs a, a charity out in Kharkiv region, rebuilding people's houses that have been destroyed by shelling. And it's, sorry, it's not just rebuilding, it's things like, oh, your boiler was destroyed, so we'll get you a new boiler. Your windows have been destroyed, so we'll get you new windows, that kind of thing. Super direct. Super oh. direct. And they only, they sort of employ locals to do it. It's not sort of, it's Amazing. money, the money pays for that and it goes out. It's better and than the UN. Yeah. So, so, so we, so I, so I saw this and sort of thought this is really interesting. We spoke to her about that and that, and, and we did the interview and she was very powerful and interesting. And then we kept in touch. I mean, I'm going to see her next week, I think, when she's back in Kiev. And um, anyway, and she, um, sort of, I think a couple of weeks later, I said something like, out of interest, like, did you get many donations? What happened? And she said, oh, yeah, we had enough donations, I think, I think this is right, to rebuild another 40 houses. Oh, my God. And, like, these, so these are the of, one interview basically yeah, rebuilt yeah. 40 houses. So uh, that's what we really hope to go to Harkiv this time to go and see these houses, go to talk to the people who, who but we, the risk assessment, I think it was when all the S300s were being fired at Harkiv, is when they were looking. So we didn't, we didn't get the go ahead. But we, we're going to hear hopefully some of their stories of like these people who live in like rural Kharkiv near to Russia, who, mm -hmm. thanks to basically people listening in the USA or mm -hmm. Britain or wherever, mm -hmm. um, they've got new windows. And that incredible like human solidarity, that generosity. Which connection is, yeah, across, yeah. you know, across countries. I think, I guess we're going <laughs> to have to keep doing it and yeah, our yeah. listeners are going to have to keep listening and donating. This is also an excellent note to end on. It's a bit more hopeful than my Hopefully. stories. <laughs> Thank you so much, David, for doing this again. A, a pleasure.
and we're waiting for more visits from you to Kyiv. Hopefully soon, yeah. <laughs>